0: Hey everybody, I'm Tom Corbett. And I'm Justin St. Louis. And this is Uncommon Deeds.
1: <laughs>
0: we are firmly in 2000. 2000- and 22 episode number 48 um yes yep it is
1: yeah. 48 jesus
0: welcome everybody hey we are we are quickly approaching the 1 year mark for us mhm
1: i kind of wish that the way that it all i mean how do you ever know this but like Christmas, well, Thanksgiving, we did a thing special graphic, and then Christmas did a special graphic, and then it's New Year's, and then episode fifty comes up, and then one year, like it's all it's too close together.
0: It is. It's very. So let's go
1: back in time and and start this podcast in July or something.
0: Hmm. No. Well, we got a lot of them in the can, so if you want to start over at one, <laughs>
1: yeah, we can do that. You gotta. We got a lot of weeks
0: to figure out our next guest. <laughs> yeah. But we're pretty excited
1: to bring this week's guest. Oh, man.
0: Rich Duvaux.
1: Uh, this is a big one.
0: This was a really good one, and for a lot of reasons. And not to give too much away, this is a guy who has gone through a lot recently. And he talks about it, lost his, his brother, who was his right-hand man in yeah. life and in racing and, you know, his stepfather who got him into racing and, you know, and he was very forthcoming with, you know, how hard it has been for him to try to get back on a racetrack without his brother. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This one was, um, pretty emotional at times. Um, just, uh, Rich Dubo is a stand-up dude. <laughs> I mean, that's—I don't know what else to say. Um, and you're gonna feel it when you when you come through this episode at the end of it. You're gonna be like, "Whoa, <laughs> this guy has been down some roads and is just uh, a rock star about the whole thing." Um, and, I, and not only personally, you know, but with racing too. Like this is a champion of one of the most respected touring series in the country. One of the oldest in the country. Yeah. And, and at a young age, at a young looking, age, I
0: mean, he won his championship. He was 30 years old Yeah. and I was going through and I was looking and I figured I would, I didn't tip you off to this cause I wanted to see how you would do. Go ahead. Uh, there are only five, five ACT champions, who won a title younger than 30 years old. Some of them won multiples, yeah. and I think you know who those are. But can you name the five drivers younger right. than 30? Five? Five.
1: Ryan Hoare was 21. Correct. I know that one. Um, Joey Pohl must must be on the list.
0: Yeah, he was 25.
1: Yeah. Um, I would guess Lance Furno was under 30. 22. Hey, really? I thought he might be the one you forgot wow. about. Wow. wow! He's much younger than I thought he was. What is that, three? Um, of course, now I'm forgetting who the champions were. Pete Fecto, for sure. No, sir. No. Not quite. <laughs> Not, no. Uh, I mean, is Brian Hoare three of them? <laughs>
0: well, yes. <laughs> He's He won like five <laughs> yeah. in his 20s. Yeah. But there are five individuals who won drivers. at least one under thirty. God, I gotta look at the list of
1: champions. Uh, I don't think Scott Paya qualifies. No, he was. No, his 30s. One, it's thirties.
0: One, I thought you would get Jimmy Hebert. Thirty? No, he is one. He was twenty-nine.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: And the last one, I thought you would get quicker.
2: Give it to me.
1: He has
0: been a guest on our show. Oh, I'm sure. Gene paul Sear. really he was twenty eight when he won his first, okay, yeah, Gene's not that
1: old, okay, yeah, God, that was a long time ago though yeah,
0: he won a couple and then like he won again when he was thirty eight ten years old that's later. what
1: I was thinking of. I mean, I know that he won The second quarter, yeah, yeah, I'm putting him at his at his current age, then that doesn't make any sense, huh, okay,
0: I thought you might enjoy that.
1: I do those; those are the stats I live for. <laughs> yes, sir.
0: But all oh, to come back a circle, we were just pointing out, like <laughs> yes,
1: what he had. Uh,
0: it is not a common thing, and there are far more of the champions who are older than or thirty.
1: Yeah, who won? Well, and he comes from a weird region to be successful on the tour too. You know, he didn't come from the. Thunder Road hotbed because that's, you know, really when you get right down to it over the course of ACT history, 90% of the stars are from Thunder Road, Catamount, Airborne, that that footprint that Tom Curley and Ken Squire builds. Yeah, I can't – I feel
0: like we have not talked about Claremont almost at all.
1: Yeah, I I mean, Dwight Jarvis, and that was was about it. Yeah, Um, and there's a lot of guys – that we need to talk to. Uh, Someone gave four, us a
0: hell of a list today.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Turn Four podcast guys really pissed me off in the best of ways because they got Donnie Miller, the Golden Jet, uh, and I really he was really high on my list. Um, maybe we can still get him. That's fine, um, but they should get him because that's that's their zone. That's you know Claremont is that's their deal. Um, but I mean Bruce Batchelder and. Peter uh, Daniels punky Karen for God's sake. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of guys that we need to, to get on the show. And we mentioned one of them, Donnie Lashua, and he's not a Claremont guy necessarily, but um, the Canaan area. Um, yeah. We got to spend some more time in that neck of the woods, but this is a pretty good entry drug, I guess. Yeah. And mm. what has been a,
0: a crazy week. For a lot of people, yeah. you know, you're thinking more nationally. We lost Betty White, who I don't know about you, but I grew up with my grandmother watching Golden Girls. And I can still rock some Golden Girls to this day. I can put that on. It
1: holds up. I want a Dorothy in the streets and a Blanche in the sheets. That's an old saying. <laughs> Uh, when, when Linda was in the hospital in labor with Evelyn, it was a 44 hour, it was a disaster, but at one point they put her epidural in and she fell asleep for a few hours. I put on golden girls and I watched it in the, on ho- sitting on the end of Linda's bed, by the, by her feet and I watched golden girls for three hours on purpose.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, oh,
1: yeah. it holds up, man. Dude, and like, go watch Match Game from the seventies where Betty White's on there. She's freaking Mm -hmm. hilarious, and honestly, her career in the way way back in the black and white days, yeah, she was a groundbreaker.
0: And even moving the Hot in Cleveland, that show was big on like TV Land and stuff more recently, and that was that was big. And then she started doing the like crazy Snickers commercials, and had like this renaissance.
1: Did you ever see the movie Lake Placid? Yes. One of the funniest lines of any movie. It's a terrible movie, but she was one of the stars. She was the star. She, she had the, she was, you know, this 900 pound alligator or whatever it was. She was, that it was a man eater. She was, it's caretaker out in the woods. And I'm not going to repeat the line here on the show, but I'm sure it's on YouTube. Go look it up. It's the funniest goddamn thing. She didn't take herself too seriously. That's what I loved her, about her. Yeah. And
0: then in the sports world or even the video game world, depending yeah. on where you know him from, is John Madden. You
1: know, I mean, arguably bigger in the video game world than in real life. Yeah. Honestly.
0: He was, it was John Madden and Pat Summerall mm. every Sunday on the mm-hmm. TV who would listen to. And that was, I was long after his coaching career with the Raiders was was done. And then I think my first ever Madden game was Madden 94 for Sega Genesis. Right. And then I went on a long run of I always had to have the Madden Madden games and I've now, tailed not, off recently.
1: I'm not a huge football guy, but isn't there like the Madden curse?
0: There was for a like while. you're on it's the cover. Since, of the- it's since I think been broken. Yeah. We've had some successes, but there was a long stretch where, yeah, if you were on the cover, usually that next season you were getting injured or yeah. have a tough break.
1: Hot trash of some sort. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, you know, locally and especially in our family here on Uncommon Deeds and Uncommon Media, you know, the Massetti brothers unfortunately lost their father.
1: Yeah, our uh, you know we're going to take a break from um, the Pro Heat and the Massetti brothers' custom vinyl lettering ads, um, uh, just to give them a a bit of a reprieve. And um, our thoughts are with Paul and Michael John and, and their families. Um, it's tough. <laughs> it's to start off a new year, and now to be reminded of it during the holidays every year for the rest of their lives is going to be something that I deal with. My father died in December. Um, you know, it was 12 years ago and every Thanksgiving I start to ramp up. And now that's something that they're going to have to go through. And, you know, our, our thoughts are with them and, and their families. And that's a hard time. Um, Bill Callan also from um, mostly Lee USA Speedway, but every racetrack as um, a guy that everybody knew and, and he just passed on too. So, it's been a rocky start <laughs> to the year. Hopefully it's, it's over with, but, um, for whatever reason, there. it
0: always seems to come in like waves. Oh man. So I know like with celebrities, yeah, I always said it comes in threes.
1: What was it? Uh, Michael Jackson and Farrah Fawcett died on the same day. Right. I like that. No. Yeah. Yeah. But we wanted to recognize those, those people, especially, um, Paul Massetti, the third, I believe. Um, so, yeah, our thoughts with with the families um, of all of those, all of all of those, including the celebrities, of course. You know, I mean, it's, hey, they were Betty White and John Madden were part of all of our lives, <laughs> for real. And uh, if
0: they weren't, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Yeah, boy, um, no, uh, no, easy <laughs> transition.
1: From, no,
0: from there. But like I said, very excited for you to hear today's episode. And, you know, we, when we stopped hitting record, uh, we talked to rich for a few minutes after, after we stopped recording. And then when he logged off, Justin said, yeah, I think this is my favorite one.
1: I'm close. If it's not, um, just yeah, rich, rich Dubois was super open with us about a lot of stuff. Um, on and off. Uh, the record, you know, he, he was, he talked to us a little bit uh, before the show started recording too. And um, I, I hope that rich and his team are able to come back and, and rekindle the magic, even if they don't win any races or whatever, just feel normal and, and do the damn thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I told him on the air at the end of the show that racing needs guys like Rich Dubow and his team, whether it's him or, you know, a facsimile of, of them somewhere else. Um, yeah. Those are the teams that make racing what it is. And we're better off as fans when they're successful.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Without further ado, now is as good a time as ever for Justin to make today's introduction.
1: We're excited to have our guest this week. Uh, he's a guy that really took everybody by surprise a few years ago. Uh, and I, I think he's kind of the ultimate underdog. And I think Tom Curley would be pretty proud of him as well. Uh, he's a former champion in the Super Street class at the Canaan Fair Speedway. Uh, a late model champion at the Claremont speedway. And by God, he won himself an American Canadian tour championship a couple of years ago. And we haven't seen a whole lot of him since, but we're, we're glad to have him back out with us. Uh, Rich Dubow. Welcome to uncommon deeds.
2: Well, thank you guys for having me uh, on your show. I appreciate it. And uh, excited to talk some racing.
1: I want to tell you, you're the only guy we've ever talked to with a headset and a microphone. You're prepared. And we, we appreciate that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm hoping, uh, this way, I can kind of get up and move around if I have to because they're right. uh, sometimes not always ready to calm down. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we. Uh,
0: I think what are we, What is it? Tuesday. It's Tuesday as we're <laughs> recording yeah. this, and we just announced that you were going to be our guest this week, and a pretty good, pretty good roar from the from our Facebook followers who are pretty excited to hear from you.
2: Well, that's certainly nice to hear. Makes me feel good. Uh, hopefully I can live up to the high expectations. (laughs) I
1: I thought it was kind of cool that two of the very first guys to jump on the, on the bandwagon were two of our most recent guests, uh, Adam Pearson and Buck O'Branham who are from a kind of a different world than, than you are in racing. Um, and, uh, I think it's pretty cool that they they've got that respect. Um, and they're in, a, they're in the large majority of people who that have that respect. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty neat to, to see everybody kind of, whoa, I think we caught them by surprise bringing you on.
2: Yeah, like I said, I, uh, I appreciate you guys having me on, and that means a lot.
1: Amen.
0: Yeah, and uh, it took a, took a little bit on our guest the guest today for, for someone to come up with it. And I'm very happy you gave me the opportunity to get in my first, well, we try to give a hint around like three thirty, four o'clock for the 5 o'clock unveil if no one has it. And you allowed me to uh, to get in a 50 cent analogy as the hint. Uh, the question was, or I said, your hint was what was 50 cents breakthrough album. And sure enough, someone got it right off because it was get rich or die trying and they picked up on the rich. <laughs>
2: Good guess. Yeah. I'm sure you've been tied
0: to 50 Cent for a lot
2: of your, your yeah. career. Oh, so Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> uh,
0: but let's kick it off like we always do. When do you remember motorsports coming into your life?
2: Uh, motorsports has been part of my life. For most of my life. Um, I remember as a kid. um, So my stepdad came into my life. uh, When I was very young. Five, six years old. And. uh, My my stepdad lived and breathed. Racing. That's all he cared about. Dave Um, Hollinger is his name right? That's right. Yep. Yep, Dave Hollinger. Um, He raced four cylinders on the dirt. And I watched him all the time, and I just was one of those kids in the stands that was like, man, that would be so cool to to be a race car driver at any level. And uh, basically, what ended up happening after several years of watching him do it, um, he took me to a go-kart race, and at the time, I actually had no idea why we were going. I didn't put it together that, you know, this was him kind of feeling me out to see my interest level in it. Uh, I, like I said, he was obsessed with racing. I thought we were just going to watch a race or whatever. And uh, was watching the go-kart race, watching kids my age do it. And obviously I got very excited about the idea of trying it out at some point. And uh, a few weeks later, there was one of the swap meets that they did at Sugar Hill Speedway. And he asked if I wanted to go to it. And my parents didn't have a lot of money. So I, I didn't, I still at that point, for some reason, didn't really see it as an option to, I, di- I didn't think we were going for him, him to, you know, buy a go-kart for me. Um, but that's ultimately what he ended up doing. And the coolest thing about it was, for me anyway, or what meant the most was he did that and simultaneously, uh, kind of ended his racing career, uh, to focus on helping me out. I think just financially and, and just time-wise, even a four cylinder and a go-kart, it's, it's harder than people think to keep both of them going at the same time. So he let me do it, uh, ran a couple of years in a I think they were called junior outlaws at Sugar Hill Speedway. And uh in go-karts it, it's age grouped so you know after a couple of years you move up to the next one and you have to get a different style go-kart. How how old were you at this point? I think I was uh I started a little bit later than a lot of people that get into go-karts. I think I was like twelve or thirteen right around there. Um Progressed up to what they call this, I think it was a senior champ, which is what I remember watching Andy Sice race one of those. Um, of course, I didn't I didn't know what he was going to turn out to be at the time. I just saw he was really fast and uh, raced that for a couple of years. We had some success, but not, not a crazy amount of success. We, we won a few races and then uh, got to a point where uh, we lost a motor, I think. And again, my family didn't have a whole lot of money, so I just assumed that this at least the season was done. Maybe we could try to do something the next year. And a guy named Mike Doobie came up to me, and he said, "Yeah, you're not done." And he he helped out um, quite a few different kids. He was you know financially in a position where he could do that. And. I think if I remember correctly, he basically paid to uh, have our motor gone through rebuilt or got us a new motor or whatever. We finished out the year. And then uh, he asked if I wanted to race one of the, they called it a sugar Hill modified. And it was this new um, two thirds scale modified. It it was still a go-kart, but it had suspension and everything. And so I did that the following year. So I actually raced a go-kart for him um for one year and we did very well in it we won most of the races won the championship and then i i think they just kind of faded out and so i stopped driving for him when that happened and then uh progressed up to super streets got a a really rough shape piece of crap super street that uh that we actually did okay with the first year we, we won a race with it. Somehow the thing looked like it had been through five seasons without any maintenance to it at all. So, so I uh, was proud I remember, of that.
1: I remember seeing that car on pit road at Canaan one time and you, <laughs> I think I was there the night that you won the feature. And I was like, I walked by the car and it was, it was exactly like you just described, like, man, that thing is just the side of an Enduro. And I remember thinking there's no way this guy is going to win this race and you won it. I was like, okay. All right.
2: Yeah, the, blue, the blue car. It was, yeah. it was, it was roughed up pretty good, but uh, yeah, it, it, it made me feel good. Cause I had a, a couple people that came up to us the night we won in that car. Uh, Arnie Steigles, I think was one of them. And then, uh, Ricky Bly. And I remember Ricky came up and was like, man, that's, you know, if you can win in that thing, I'd hate to see what you could do in a good car. (laughs) So made me feel good. Um, and that's when we started getting closer with Alan Hammond, who was actually a huge part to my success early on in my racing career. When, when I got into full size cars, um, we just, we didn't know what we were doing at all. we, I mean, we barely knew what Stagger and Camber was, <laughs> so uh Alan really got us pointed in the right direction. so appreciate the hell out of him for doing that. Um, he's the one who kind of convinced us to he's like, all right man it's it's time to get a nicer car, you know, an updated chassis. this thing's like twenty years old and you know take it to the next level, hopefully so got it got a nicer car, uh the red one which was also a super street, and pro- progressed with it. You know, we got better with it and everything. And uh, I probably, I just got a little bit better. And uh, my stepdad ended up getting sick. And uh, I, I, I can't remember exactly how many years we ran that red car. It was probably only a couple of years. And uh, the, the year he got sick, we were in the points chase for that. I don't remember exactly where we were. Um, he ended up passing away mid-season, and then I had the the decision if I wanted to, you know, call it. Again, he he was the one that got me into racing, and uh, he funded it the best he could. You know, I was still a kid, well, probably late teens or whatever at that point. Well, early twenties maybe, uh, but not enough to, to keep it going by myself so when he passed away it was it was uh just my brother and i maintaining the car getting it to the track and everything and and uh (laughs) the the bad luck kept coming because we we were second in points and blew up a motor in practice and that's when i said we're definitely done now like i i definitely you know have no way of getting a motor I, i can't afford a motor i don't we're you know we're done and once again uh a guy named scott ovett another good friend of mine came up and his i was actually competing against his daughter in the super streets and uh he came up and kind of said what mike said he's like yeah you're not done he's like we'd like you to take our car and, and finish out the year and try to go win the thing if you want to i was like oh if you're sure that's what you want you know that's really nice of you guys to to do that i i almost felt bad about it because i didn't want someone else to stop racing just so i could keep going even if we were in the championship hunt and uh but they let me do it they were over the top supportive and sure enough we uh went into the last race like four points in the lead it was a really tight points race and we ended up winning the heat race the feature race and the championship at the same same night and uh that was one of the fastest cars i've ever driven for sure that was a very good car comparatively to the competition anyways Mm -hmm. so uh won a championship in that and then uh i actually that was the point in the off season where i approached my current car owner and I, I honestly was only going to him to ask him if he would be willing, interested in sponsoring us, Chick Henry. And um, so I, you know, just said, is that something you'd be interested in doing? And he looked at me and was like, well, why don't you just drive my other car for me, which was another super street. And so my eyes were like the size of softballs. I'm like, drive, you know, your nice super street. And he was pretty set on it for whatever reason. He, he wanted me to do it. So I drove his super street for one season. I think it was. And then uh, he had a late model and he kind of would just like to go out and have fun in it. And uh, he eventually stopped driving himself and asked if I wanted to drive the late model. So took over the driving the late model um, and then I think it was only one season. I drove it at Canaan. We finished third in points with it, which was really cool. And then Chick sold the track. He was the owner of Canaan. Right. So he's, he sold the track. Um, and then we were forced to, our next closest track was Claremont. I had never raced at Claremont. Um, so we went there for a season. I didn't, didn't even think of the tour as a, as an option at all. So we went to Claremont and, uh, did, did really well at Claremont. We won the championship there in the late model. And then, uh, I think it was Kyle Welch that kind of started pointing us in the direction of saying, you guys should go run on the tour. And I did really well here. So what was that
0: learning curve like for you? I mean, the super street stuff, and everything seems to go real fast for you. you know you lose your stepfather, you think you're done? This guy comes out of nowhere, gives you a ride, you win a championship. next thing you know, you're in the late models seems like a bit of a blur, so I was curious what that progression was like for you, and how much it took for you to kind of learn learn the late models
2: yeah I mean in- interestingly enough the the way the rules were at Canaan for the super streets versus the late models the cars really weren't crazy different I mean they were different um, the tires mainly I think were the were the main difference but in terms of how the car drove um, it, it the bigger step certainly was going from go-karts to the super street the super street to the late model wasn't the driving part of it wasn't um, crazy different but the competition was different for sure the the competition was quite a bit stiffer um, that also was the first year where we uh, my brother suggested it actually that we bring it up to our, to the chassis builder it happened to be a distance chassis and he said well why don't we you know get in touch with the guy that built the chassis and see if he can he can help us out a little bit more with the setup go a little bit further with it. So that's what we did. And it's actually, uh, it's kind of funny. So my, the first night in a late model was we actually were pretty fast. Um, We brought it up to Jeff Taylor at distance and it also happened to be the first day that um, my good friend, Sean, who's been sponsoring me since go-karts and he's currently on the team and my best friend nick who lives in maine they they didn't know each other but they both it was their first race they came to watch was my first time in a late model and we were we were very very fast but uh i think we started like 11th through 12th and we were up to third in a hurry but uh unfortunately something happened with the sway bar the the bracket for the sway bar backed out or something stupid and uh we had to come in and fix it then we came back out on the track last and got caught up in a wreck so but was this was this at Canaan? this was at Canaan, yeah in the late model but however many laps it was 15 laps 20 laps uh that was all it took for my best friend nick and my friend sean to uh, permanently join the team because they were, they were pretty excited to see how well we were going. And again, up to that point, it was just me and my brother. So I certainly welcomed them in with open arms. Did
0: did any of the other drivers or anybody kind of take you under their wing at all or help you out? Or was it more or less just you and your brother trying to figure it out?
2: It was me and my brother at the garage where it matters, you know, but, My stepdad was a big part of uh, Canaan on the dirt and asphalt. And, you know, I think a lot of people felt, felt bad for us. And at the track, when I came in, like when the sway bar mount, the bracket backed off. Yeah, we had, I mean, I, I remember there was like 10 or 15 people around our car and uh, they were all, you know, wanting to help us to get back on the track. So everyone was very supportive at the track. Um, I remember looking up to Donnie Lashua a lot. He he really meant a lot to me. I thought on and off the track, he carried himself very well and basically was the type of person that I wanted type of person and driver that I wanted to be. Um, So I would say he would probably be the main, main one that I looked up to. He's a guy that he's a guy that we got to have on this show for sure. Yeah. Um, He's, He's an awesome guy.
1: Yeah. I mean, he dominated both the tracks at Canon. A couple of questions that I want to build on out of that. Um, First of all, do you think that it uh, maybe was an advantage for you having run the super streets before getting into the late models? I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds like it was a fairly easy transition and, you know, having Jeff Taylor in your back pocket doesn't, doesn't hurt things by any means, but um sounds like you really weren't a rookie when you showed up as a rookie, right?
2: Right. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Like I said, the rules package was, it was interesting. I mean, the super streets at the time were so close to late models. It was different tires. I mean, I'm sure it was different shocks. And, you know, you could run coilovers in the late model rack steering. Um, But, like, we had built motors I think a lot of the super street motors were actually producing more horsepower than the late models.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, I think the super streets had treaded tires, but it was a racing treaded tire. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that I, you know, maybe it, it, I'm sure it did help a lot. um, Taking the steps, you know, going from go-karts to, to the super streets and then late models versus just jumping from go-karts to late models. Cause like I said, the competition, it's a noticeable step up.
1: My other question is, man, I miss Canaan so bad. How much fun was that place? We, we haven't had too many people on here talk about Canaan. Take us for a lap around that place and and how much fun that place used to be.
2: Yeah, that place was awesome. Um, I, I, people try to compare Canaan to different tracks. Um, Some people try to say that, Shadiir is kind of similar that have been to both. Okay, I can see how they draw the comparison, but like I don't know, turns one and two at Shadiir are quite a bit different. But yeah, Canaan was an awesome track. It was a momentum track. I thought it was relatively high grip, Um, and and it it was just a good good racing track because you know there were definitely two grooves uh, that you could actually go out and race each other on it wasn't banked as it was, I don't know, half banked. <laughs> uh It yeah. wasn't flat like Oxford. It wasn't banked like thunder road. It was, it was right in the middle of the two third mile. Um, just a, a really racy track. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever race on the dirt? Uh, not really. No, I technically, I went out for a few laps in uh, that lovely blue car we were talking about. Um, on the dirt. <laughs> yeah, It, I, I don't think for a race, uh, we brought it over. I, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but we brought the car over and someone had dirt tires or something and we'd throw them on. And we had, like I said, we had no idea what we were doing. I think we even ran like the same tire pressures that we did on asphalt, which was like, I don't know, 25 pounds on the right. <laughs> so it was, I, I was about as slow as you could be in a dirt car. <laughs> have fun though i did i did um i'm extremely competitive <laughs> yeah, i'm not, though, I'm
1: not convinced
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I did have fun i've i've always wanted to actually try it but i want to you know I'd, I'd want the chance to have a, a fair shot at it i'd say like i said it's not like i was racing or or anything i was so far off the pace that it was i'm a competitive person so if i if i go out on the track doing anything and I feel like there's not even a chance to compete at all. It's going to take a little bit of the fun away.
0: So what was the first trip to Claremont like for you? Kind of your first time at a different track other than Canaan.
2: Yeah, it was different. Um, I remember a few people. Yeah, there were the, there was like the, the Claremont locals. And it was a little intimidating for sure because – Aside from Sugar Hill to Canaan, I would never switched tracks. Those are the only two I've ever been to, had been to at the time. And uh, I remember there is more than one person that said, this track is unique, and it's going to take you about half the season to figure it out. And they're right, it is, it is unique. But uh, our first three finishes there, we, we finished second, second our first three. So uh, that part was pretty cool. To, to have success at, at a, cause it is, it's a weird track turns one and two are nothing like three and four. Um, so it did take some getting used to, but yeah, like I said, we had some success right off, which was cool. Yeah. It's like one a and one B and then turn two. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's a good way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a real weird fun. It's fun. It's a fun racetrack, but it's, it's a strange bird.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it is strange, and it's it for us. It, it's almost impossible to dial a car in there because there's no way you can be great in both corners. You either have to get it better down in one and two or three and four. <laughs> mm. You got to pick one. You only ran one season there, if I if I recall correctly. Yeah, one season, and, um,
1: and won the championship.
2: <laughs> yep, yeah, it, it was awesome. Um, I, I don't. I don't really want to publicly get into the specifics of it, but there was a couple things that we didn't like the way a couple things were handled. Um, it's different ownership now, different different people.
1: Yeah, it was still and Twin it, State.
2: That was the last year it was Twin State, right? That's right. Yeah, Yep. Yeah. 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 So I don't hold anything against anyone there at all. Um, but for us, you know, we were a little disappointed in a couple things that that happened. For us at the end of the year, <clears throat> the way it was handled. Like I said, my friend, we were friends with Kyle Welch and, and he had been running the tour. I don't think for very long, maybe only a, a season or two. And he kept saying towards the end of the season, he's like, man, you got to come on the tour, go to different tracks every week. He's like, it's awesome. And, uh, so I think he's the one that actually ended up talking us into it.
0: And then, so you decide to make that switch and you're going to run the tour And you don't qualify at Thunder Road. Was that a kind of a reality check or a swift kick in the balls, for lack of a better term?
2: Oh, big time. But I think it's important to back up because Thunder Road was the third race of the year. So how it happened was we jumped into our first race was Oxford. And uh, (laughs) we go up to Oxford We had some problem. I don't remember what it was in the heat race. And uh, I remember, I mean, a lot of ACT races you had to qualify into. That's how it used to be and sometimes still is. And we had some problem where we couldn't even go out for the qualifying race. Um, So we had to ask Tom Curley if we could even start the feature. I think there was only like 26 of us. But anyway, we ended up starting last and we drove up to ninth finished ninth and on the ride home from oxford we were like man that's pretty cool like everyone says you know tour is tough good luck basically and we're like oh maybe it's not that bad so that was a big confidence booster and then the second race we go to lee and we finished 11th i think it was so we were like oh cool we're doing great you know for rookies our first year and then uh, and then yeah what you brought up the next one was Thunder Road. And that was the reality check. So <laughs> we uh, we go out, and just like you said, we didn't qualify, and that was uh, one of the worst rides rides home from the track that I've ever had. Um, but luckily, to this point, uh, it's th- it's the only time that we've never actually qualified into a race. But yeah, Thunder Road's tough. Did you
1: travel around to different tracks as a kid, or was it just Canaan? I mean, is that, had you seen any of these tracks before you'd raced on them?
2: Honestly, I don't think I really had. I don't even, I don't even think that I, would I might've seen Thunder Road. Um, but for the most part, no, I, I don't even think, I don't even think I saw Thunder Road. So nope. uh, first year on the tour, um, it was the first time going to all those tracks that I remember. That is wild. Yeah, I thought it was cool at the time. I was excited about it. Uh, but obviously, you also feel like you're at a pretty big disadvantage going to all the tracks, not even seeing what they look like. <laughs> so you, you try to make friends quickly and and get their opinions on uh, you know, how to drive the track. Uh, there are certain tracks you want to save tires at and have some for the end. And then there's some that you just you just go from the beginning. So you try to try to reach out to the veterans that have been there, done that, and, uh, and just do the best you can. Sometimes you're s-
0: better off, you know, knowing that you don't know, as opposed to thinking you might have an idea when you, yeah, really I, don't.
1: I was kind of wondering, is that some sort of, I mean, you have a clean slate at every track that you go to. So is that, I don't want to say an advantage cause I don't think that's the right word, but does it, does it help that you don't have anything? You don't have preconceived notions of what you have to do.
2: Yeah. I, I do think that it, it was almost like an excuse to not have a great race in a way. I mean, that, that, <laughs> okay. that, that's, that's a negative spin on it, but you know, if you didn't run well, it's like, well, this is our first ever time being here. You know, Jeff, like, like I said, Jeff Taylor was there to help us on, uh, guessing the spring combination showing up, but a lot of the times we'd show up and our springs would be way off. Our gear would be off. And a lot of it was guessing. So you kind of took it how it was and and just said, well, you know, this is a learning experience and hopefully we can get better next time we come back here. What was your favorite track that first year? The first year. Um, Boy, I'm trying to remember every track we went to. I, I liked Lee a lot. That's, that was always one of my favorites i'd say that would probably be up there even though we ran the best at oxford i i didn't care for that track <laughs> yeah you just kind of turn that's all you do all day <laughs> yeah i mean after 20 30 laps you're uh, you're just chasing it it's very very low grip track yeah so you're just kind of dirt racing it you can't even get to full throttle typically unless you have a pretty good car so yeah, it felt like it was well, in one way it was it was in the driver's hands to, you know, do a little better than what you have, but in another way it's like when you can't even get to full throttle, you feel like it's it's so hard to to get a good setup there. So,
0: coming out of that first season on the tour, where would you put kind of that confidence level or where Where did your expectations lie going into that second season?
2: Uh, Honestly, my expectations are pretty low. Uh, We, I mean, we had one, we won rookie of the year, which was cool, but I think we finished 10th in points our our rookie year. Uh, But we just wanted to get a little better again. Our first race on the tour at Oxford, we finished ninth and that was our best finish of the season. So, I think going into year two, I just wanted to have a few more top 10 runs. Not not to keep the expectations too low, but you want to be realistic about it so that you're not disappointing yourself and the team. And uh, I'm pretty sure, like I said, going in, I was shooting for top 10s. Hmm. Does that – I guess I didn't think about that. Does that top 10 in
1: your first race at Oxford, uh, did that screw you up? I mean – You kind of like, hey, this isn't this isn't so so bad.
2: No, I think uh, Thunder Road screwed us up. (laughs) Okay, all right. In Uh, the other direction. Yeah, it it was it was a confidence booster actually at Oxford because, you know, I mean, you hear all about it when you're going on the tour, and there was actually stuff we'd heard, you know, through friends of friends that um, we were pretty stupid for for jumping to the tour, and we are in over our heads just basically that it wasn't a good idea. So when you, our first race, we had a top 10 run and it was almost like a there, take that. Like we, we can do this. Oh yeah. So, uh, but like I said, Thunder road brought us back down to earth pretty quick.
1: (laughs) So that second year, um, your, your stat record. And, and I'm talking in terms of your whole career with, with the tour just the if you look at like a building block or a, a spreadsheet of each of each season i love how your career reads where the first year you know you run all the races even including thunder road i mean you didn't qualify for the feature but you were there you only had one top 10 the next year you had a bunch of top 10s and one top 5 the year after that you had a couple of top 5s and it, there's this gradual diagonal line that the numbers get bigger, the further down you go the list. And then you start adding, you know, multiple top fives and lots of top tens. And then finally a couple of wins and I'm I'm jumping way ahead here, but um, it seems like your progression was You never went backwards um, in in your ACT career, which is very cool. Um, You know, every year you finished better in points and every year you added more top fives and top tens and, um, it just seems like you guys were sort of the slow and steady, you know, we're going to learn as we go and not just bite off this huge bite in the first couple of years and then throw in the towel. Like you see so many teams do.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I won't lie. I You know, the first year or two, it, it tested us as a team for sure uh, because yeah, you want to keep your expectations realistic, but at the same time, when you strap into the car and you put the helmet on, uh, at least for me, I'm going to go try to win the race. And it does wear on you a little bit in the beginning. Cause you know, you do start to second guess things like, you know, can I really hang with these guys? Uh, some really talented drivers and really intelligent people on the teams through ACT, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm super proud of the progression that we showed. It is crazy how it was such a steady progression from 10th to 7th to 5th to winning the championship. No, 5th to 4th to winning the championship. Um but I won't lie. I mean even you want to you hope for the progression, but you do say, you know, are we going to finally level out at some point and Fortunately for us, we, we kept progressing, which was awesome. So let's build on Tom's question there with the second year. Yeah. So, uh, so second year, I don't even remember the top five in the second year, to be honest. You well, guys said, was, um, devil's bowl, I believe. Devil's bowl, yeah. Oh, I should, on I should have known that. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, we always ran strong there for some reason. Yeah, you did. Um, that was always a great track for us. There's one that really stands out to me for some reason, and I know it stands out to the team as well. We, we were struggling for, as we noted, the whole first year, and then I, I believe we were struggling, if I remember correctly. It had to have been at least a few races into year two. And we went down to Waterford, and we kind of hung with them a little bit. We finished seventh pretty sure. And the reaction from the team after finishing seventh was interesting (laughs) because, uh, I, I get out of the car and everyone has smiles from ear to ear, um, high fives. And we were pumped because we, it had been so long since we finished in the top 10. And that race is what felt like it started to change at that point. Um, from there you know we kind of said well maybe we can maybe we can run with them and i think at least the way i remember it that's kind of what started the uh the building of the confidence i guess you could say
0: i'm going to jump around a little bit cuz you mentioned kind of the building of the confidence and you mentioned as a team building that confidence to whatever it is probably what, 95% of the people that watch you guys race. The only names they know are the drivers, the people written on the door. How cool was it for you to see your brother recognized for crew chief of the year? And was it 2018?
2: Yeah, uh, that was awesome. Um, and that really meant the world to him. He's a super, super smart guy. And it it did mean the world to me as well because you're right a lot of lot of people that make the car go fast behind the scenes don't get the recognition that they deserve I believe that with all my heart um, so that felt awesome to see we we you lost your brother um, a couple of
1: years ago or or uh, almost two years ago. And you talk about it as much as you want or as little as you want, um, but, uh, you know, he was your right-hand man the whole time. Um, he did some racing himself, didn't he?
2: Yeah, he um, he did some four-cylinder dirt racing, and he actually tried a, a dirt modified for a short period of time until he had problems. And, and uh, kind of like my stepdad, he decided to give it up to help me out and support me um yeah David was uh, extremely important to me through racing obviously on and off the track um we'd hang out multiple times every week you know, we were very close um and in regards to racing David was my crew chief my spotter and my tire guy wow. um and that's not taking away anything from anyone else on the team it's just He was one of the few people that was capable of handling all of that stuff. And, uh, and, and that's being honest. He was our crew chief. We, you know, once a year we'd take our car and bring it up to distance racing and Jeff Taylor would go through the thing, look it over and everything. But after that, it was us. Um, And I could go on for hours about, why i think he was so successful but um just he was just a very but he was very precise with the car um uh, you could tell his heart was into it and i think somehow people underestimated his intelligence but he uh yeah he he made me look good i'll say that and uh look good you guys did
0: especially headed into that next year you break through you start getting those wins, get the win at Chaudière and also, you know, the full circle, you get the win at Thunder Road.
2: Yeah. Both of those were incredible. Um, the Chaudière race was, was crazy because we, so everyone knows we were a little bit of a lower budget team. Um, we weren't the team that would buy practice tires or multiple sets of practice tires. So a lot of the times when we were practicing at different tracks, we had to kind of ignore the speed charts because, uh, you know, we we were never really top 10 in speed on older tires. So the downfall to that is you'd get to a heat race a lot of the time and not really know exactly what you have for speed. Mm. You're going off feel of the car. So we got into that to the heat race and I thought that we were decent Um, as everyone knows the ACT toward is a plus minus system and oh yeah (laughs) and uh, if I'm remembering correctly I want to say we had like a plus one we passed one car and I'll never forget coming in and I'm like yeah you know we're a little tight through the middle we we could It'd be nice if it rotated a little more through the middle, but I can drive it in pretty deep and we have pretty good grip up off the corners. And uh, (laughs) my brother, David was standing there and he's like, yeah, I think we need to take a big swing at the car. And I remember I was actually a little offended at first because I'm like, well, I don't feel like we were that bad. And as a driver, you're, you're busting your ass out there. And, It may not always appear this way, but passing one car in an ACT heat race is, that means, you know, you're, you're okay. You're not, it obviously depends on who it is and the circumstances and everything. But, you know, we were moving forward and they're short races, they're 10, 12 lap races or whatever. But he was pretty adamant about it. He said, no, he's like, I, I really, I can just see the car. He's like, I can see it's just not turning the way we need it to turn. So, long story short, we agreed on the type of change we wanted to do. We wanted to raise the J-bar, which, you know, everyone has their own opinions on what it does for the car at different points in the corner. But we learned that for our car, raising or lowering the J-bar basically helped with the center, through the center of the corners for, for ours, for whatever reason. So, to me, a big change, a big swing would have been like... All right, we'll go up a half an inch with the bar. And David was like, "Yeah, I think we should. uh, I would think we should go up an inch and a half with the bar." I was like, "Uh, "I don't think that's a good idea." (laughs) (laughs) And this is for the feature. Exactly. That was the other big thing that I said. I'm like, "Man, we're gonna throw this this car right out the window, and we're gonna go backwards." if we over adjust on it and he's like, well, he said, that's my opinion. That's what I want to do. I said, well, and, and I was just at that point where I was kind of, you know, wanting to let him take the next step because ultimately as a driver, ideally you want to be able to just focus on driving the car and have someone do the thinking for you because <laughs> you don't have time to think in a race car and Sometimes when you get out of the car, you just want some water and to relax. So I said, well, if that's what you really think, go ahead. You know, we're way up in Canada, but (laughs) go ahead. Uh, (laughs) It's going to be a long walk home. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, so uh, him and, and Sean, I think it was get under the car and he's, you know, measuring the change and he's doing it and I'm relaxing for a few minutes. And he comes up to me and he's like, yeah, I uh, decided to compromise. I only went an inch and a quarter. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, that's quite the compromise. So he did that. And uh, sure enough, we went out and the car was a rocket. And the coolest thing about the two wins that we have, that we had that season, were that neither one of them, anyone can tell me that we walked into it or that it just worked in our favor. You know, the race played into our, you know, was given to us in any way. For for Um, the
1: record, you started 15th at Shodier.
2: Yeah. It, it took us a little while to get up to the front, maybe halfway through the race or whatever. But the, the most memorable part of that race to me was, I remember there being like 10 cautions at the end of that thing. And I'm like, I'm like, right. And, uh, I said, Oh, they're going to get every shot to, to, uh, take us on a restart. And for whatever reason, it just, it happened to be a very good short run car. And for the first few laps, we, we kept taking off pretty well. And, uh, yeah, it was an awesome first win and a great call by, by David with the, with the adjustment. So Thunder Road, uh, I'm still a little bit in shock about <laughs> just because it's Thunder Road.
1: Before, before we get to
2: that win, I think Tom and
1: I both have questions. Tom, go.
0: <laughs> sure. well, I was just going to say, Justin and I called that race at Thunder Road. And as it was happening, I remember us talking maybe during commercial break And with all due respect, we're like, man, Rich isn't going anywhere. He's still up
2: there. This is a bit of a surprise. You you weren't alone on that. Uh, (laughs) Driving the car, I was a little bit surprised. And as a driver, you just try to maintain focus, at least for me. And uh, no matter what part of the race you're in, you're just trying to do the best you can with it. And uh, we, I don't tell this to everyone, but um, now I'm going to, I guess. They're all listening now. (laughs) We got to somewhere between lap 100 and 110, 120. And I actually came on the radio and said, we're all done. I'm like, the car is way, it's tightening up big time. We are way too tight. And uh, my brother was just the perfect spotter for me because uh, I would imagine a lot, what a lot of people want to hear in that moment is, well, you got, like, you still got it. You got this, you got the lead, go get the win. But I didn't want to hear that. I, I, what he said was something along the lines of just, just do the best you can with it then. And it was just what I needed to hear at the time. Cause I don't know, maybe it had something to do with the, the pressure or letting the team down or whatever. It was just like, okay, we got you. We know you're doing what you can with it. We know the car is tightening up. Just do the best you can with it. And uh, what actually, I believe, saved us that race was inevitably you're going to be coming up on lap traffic. And the rule is for lap cars to go to the inside. Well, we went to go start lapping cars on the outside and the car didn't feel quite as bad on the outside i mean obviously when you go to the bottom you have to put a little more wheel into it but it just was just enough to help us where you could put a little bit less wheel in it on the you know on the second groove third groove and right as i was thinking that david came on the radio and was like man that looked that last corner looked pretty good maybe you should try running up there and sure enough uh i i mean i was Still, I was counting down the laps. We got to like 50 to go, and I'm like, all right, when are they coming? Kept looking in my mirror, and they never came. (laughs) So definitely uh, one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me and certainly something I'll never forget about. Let's take a quick break from our conversation. New England weather is unpredictable and when the power goes out, you'll need a backup
1: plan. That's why you should call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service in Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. Bushy's is the number one Briggs and Stratton dealer in the state of Vermont and they'll help you every step of the way from sales and installation of Kohler and Briggs and Stratton home standby propane generators to service and maintenance on all makes and models of generators from 10 kilowatts to 200. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service has been in business for 10 years and they cover all of Vermont, New Hampshire, as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut and New York. If you need a backup plan, call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service at 802-591-1903 or visit their Facebook page or bushysgenerator.com. Plus, you know, you can always talk racing with Ben because he's won a lot more races than I ever have. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service of Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. We keep your power on. Barry Tile and Morrison Clark Incorporated have got you covered, literally. They're your number one stop in central Vermont for all types of flooring, whether it's tile, carpet, hardwood, or any other type of flooring, indoor or outdoor, for your home or your business.
0: Berry Tile staff are qualified installers who can offer you real-world flooring experience and knowledge that you don't always find in the big chain stores. But you don't need our endorsement. They've been family-owned and operated since 1972, which means they're celebrating 50 years in business in 2022, and that stands for itself. And hey, not only are they great at what they do,
1: they're racers, too. You got it, man. Check out Barry Tile's Facebook page to see some examples of their incredible work. You can call them the old-fashioned way, 802-476-0912, or just stop into the showroom, 889 South Barry Road in Barry, Vermont. Make sure that you tell them that the guys at Uncommon Deeds sent you. Thanks to all our sponsors who
0: help us bring this show to you for free every single week. Now, back to our show.
1: Let's back up the show to show here. What is the hometown reaction? when you pull into victory lane in Quebec racing against, you know, the best of the best far, far away from home at a place you maybe seen once or twice. I don't know how many times you'd race the show to air at that point, but, um, you know, and there was all those people saying moving up to the tour is a stupid idea. What are you doing?
2: Yeah. I I thought about that stuff probably afterwards. Um, but in the moment it was just a really cool, really cool moment for the team the the victory Um,
1: lane pictures you look like you can't
2: believe what just
1: happened like you're you're just you're kind of stone-faced
2: yeah that's that's probably how i was feeling for sure um and then of course they're you know they're they're going on about it over the mic and i don't understand a word they're saying (laughs) (laughs) i'm just like i don't really care what they're saying this is awesome (laughs) so how how
1: did they pronounce your name because that's one of the greatest parts about going up to the Quebec tracks is, is hearing the difference in how they pronounce the American drivers' names. Because you've got a French name.
2: <laughs> right. That's what I was about to say. I don't remember exactly how, I think it was pretty close because I have a French name. Um, yeah. And some of the guys on the team said that I actually had a lot of cheers when we were, because we were battling hard initially when we took the lead over La Pearl. Uh, there were a lot of cheers, I guess, when we got into the lead. So they yeah, hate him up there. I, From what I hear, it's like half of them love them, half of them hate them. <laughs> so.
0: You said at least you have kind of the French-sounding name, which I think probably helps helps in that area. You can't really French up like sweet
2: too much. <laughs> yes. Right, so, so maybe that helped me out a little. Polo
1: Warzik is not a French name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, and now then the same question for the Thunder Road win.
2: Uh, in terms of like the crowd reaction,
1: I mean the crowd or your hometown, you know, the people that you grew up at Canaan with or at Claremont or, you know, I mean, one maybe is a fluke, two is not a fluke and to do it the way that you, I mean, you dominated that race at Thunder Road, whether you, mm-hmm. whether your car was out to lunch or not, you let 150 laps. I mean, that's, that's pretty good.
2: Yeah. I'm <laughs> right. I mean, clearly it wasn't. Clearly the car wasn't out to lunch. Uh, It just, I guess maybe it was just one of those moments where I was a little bit in disbelief that we were leading the Labor Day classic at Thunder Road. You know, the only track we couldn't qualify into. Um, Yeah. I had all kinds of people reach out. Uh, I think a lot of my friends and local people around here were, were just as shocked. Like you said, the cool thing about it was, you know, the first one you can, you can say it was somewhat of a fluke or whatever, but uh, to follow it up with Thunder Road was like the ultimate exclamation point. Um, And then obviously at the same time, that pretty much solidified the championship. So it was, it was hard to believe for sure. Um, I remember a kind of a funny little weird story. My, my brother (laughs) actually stopped spotting for me the last, Ten fifteen laps uh i I don't know exactly what happened. he said he was he was in shock too. He was overly impressed with what was going on and he <laughs> I remember after the race he told me his hands were going numb <laughs> so uh I think we were all pretty shocked about it um but like i said it it was probably the coolest place to win at.
1: there are um only. I mean, damn few guys from your neck of the woods that have won anywhere on the tour, um, especially there. And I can think of Alan Whipple. Um, Kyle Welch did get a win up at Groveton. It was, it was in the Tech Line, um, but he still was there. Um, and then, boy, after that, you got to go away. Go, yeah, Alan Whipple is 1980. So, I mean, it, you're you're kind of putting the Upper Valley back on the map, whether you intend to or not. Um, did that ever? ring a bell with you? I mean, is that anything you ever thought about?
2: Not really, honestly. Um, until you wrote the article about us, (laughs) um, that's really when I started learning about that. Um, but yeah, I don't, before that, I had never really thought of it. Just, uh, individually trying to go out and do the best that we can really, you know,
0: you look at the numbers and, Justin always gives me great numbers. And that championship year, you know, you complete every single lap for the entire season. And I think it was an average finish of like 4.5 and only one race outside of the top 10. As you're going through the year, are you realizing, you know, the run you're on? Or is it, you know, two months after you win a championship, it starts to sink in like, holy crap.
2: We, we killed this. Yeah. It was the two to three months after for sure. Um, It, it was like I said, even going into Thunder road, we had a pretty decent points lead on Jimmy, Uh, but I honestly was, I was waiting for something to happen. Jimmy's fast. And I'm, I'm just like, man, I, it's hard to believe we're leading the points this late into the season. And I sort of didn't really want to focus on that stuff. The the team kept wanting to remind me exactly how many points we were ahead of Jimmy and then how many we were ahead of, I think it was the RPM team at the time. Um, But obviously we did have a lead. And then when we won Thunder Road, the same day, Jimmy and I think the RPM team, uh, Scott, both had troubles the same day. And so so after Thunder Road, you know, we had a pretty good idea that it was looking really good. And then sure enough, when you started looking at the points, we basically just had to fire up the engine at Thompson to clinch it. Um, but yeah, it was... It took quite a while for the disbelief to go away. You know, sometimes I still think about it and I'm like, that's crazy that we did that.
1: The Thunder Road win. And this is something that I just, I typed it to Tom as you were talking about it. Um, and it just popped into my mind. That was the race that was the makeup from when uh, Dean Gallison and John, Jonathan LeMay had their accident. They got hit. Yeah. Um And I don't know that I've asked anybody about that day. I I actually wasn't there for that. Um, Tom was. Um, I texted you right after it happened. Yeah. I was at devil's bowl for the Vermont 200 that day. And Tom messaged me. I just watched two people get killed. Um, Does that have any sort of an effect on you as a driver knowing, I mean, it really stuff like that just doesn't happen. And then it did. Um, Is that something that, do you ever think about or going back to Thunder Road um, for that event? Um, is it something that, you know, struck a, a chord differently with you than, than maybe any other race?
2: It did. Yeah. Cause um, they're both good friends to me. Um, I mean, even if they weren't, I, I, I know what you're asking it. Yeah. It was intense. And just like Tom said, I had, I thought people were joking at first. I, I remember hearing a loud bang. And I, I looked at my best friend, Nick, and I was like, wow, that was a hard hit. I had no idea that there was a person, you know, in between that hit (laughs) um, outside of a car. So I remember, you know, walking towards the track to kind of see what happened and people I've never seen anything like it because people were running away from the track and one guy said he said dean's dead and i turned to nick and i'm like why would someone joke about something like that i'm like that's not funny at all and then everything you know started to get pretty serious and we started hearing bits of what was going you know what happened i didn't see it um but again i heard it And then uh, the weird thing uh, tied to, like you said, us going to the makeup race. Um, Chris actually had a driver's meeting way after everything was, you know, they took him in the DART helicopter and they left and he had a driver's meeting and he basically asked the drivers only, you know, what they felt about if we wanted to race still today or if we didn't want to. And, I was the one that spoke up and, and said that I wasn't up for racing that day. Um, and I distinctly remember just looking around at everyone and everyone was, I can't imagine anyone would have been like, yeah, let's, I'm ready to go. And I remember looking over at Jason Corliss and he was just looking at the ground. And like I said, when, when Chris asked us, um, I think everyone is still quite a bit in shock, but I, I spoke up and I, cause I was just pretty sure about how I felt. I said, I'm just not in the mood to race right now. And to Chris's credit, there was zero hesitation on his end. And I, I don't know the logistics of it, but I'm sure he lost. All, not that he cared in that moment, but I'm sure he lost money. Um, obviously it wasn't ideal, uh, but, but, He said, okay, we're going to pack it up and reschedule. But, again, at that point, we didn't know if both of them were going to be okay. Um, We did get word that, you know, they were conscious. Uh, They were, you know, they were breathing, which was good. But we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. So, yeah, that was a crazy day. Um, I think we must've qualified into that race, but some of the ACT guys hadn't qualified in. So uh, when we went back, it was weird because some teams still had to run their, must've been their heat or the CONCIE maybe, maybe we ran the heat races and not the consie. Um, So it, they had to like finish up with qualifying orders and everything. And, um, but when we got to the race, um, I knew that they were both going to be okay. I know Jonathan had, a, well, they both had a crazy long recovery, um, but we knew that they were going to make it. They they were going to be okay. So uh, I know when we went back to race, it wasn't it wasn't the same type of day. It wasn't that I was worried about you know losing one of my friends.
0: I think uh, Dean was there that day. Had him in the in the golf cart he came out said some words and quite the ovation
2: yeah typical dean too he was joking around with us and in about as good as spirits as you could be so um i think that to your point yeah i think that also helped quite a bit to to at least see him there and he wasn't going to get close to that wall <laughs> but yeah it was nice to see him at the track for sure
0: there's no real good segue from from those type of stories, but uh, for you, you know kid from New Hampshire and you got all these people telling you that you know you have no business jumping onto the tour, what was it like for you you know pulling into New Hampshire Motor Speedway to run at Loudon with you know the best of the best of the ACT guys.
2: Yeah. uh, It was intense and exciting at the same time. Um, I mean, as a kid, you know, I watched NASCAR and stuff. And as a kid, you, you dream of situations like that. Uh, Even being in a late model, it it was, you know, very cool. Slightly intimidating for sure. Uh, You hear certain things that, Kind of like our first year on the tour, you don't you don't quite know what to expect because you've never been to the track, um, but you you hear about people talking about drafting and just different things you don't get at Thunder Road, uh, Oxford, Weight Mountain, your typical short tracks, um, but Loudon's awesome. It's definitely um, gut check time when you going, you know, going down the straightaways at Loudon's easy, but when you get to the end of the straightaway, and it's time to turn into the corner going at that speed, you basically, or at least I, went to go turn in, and I'm like, man, I hope we don't have any kind of mechanical failure, because that would hurt, and it was probably two or three laps in that I started getting more comfortable, um, and there is a lot of drafting at loudon with our cars so added a whole new element and yeah i love racing at loudon i'm i'm looking forward to uh getting the chance to run there again for sure um
1: guys like uh Brad Layton talk about the 321 signs on the wall i don't know if they're still there but when he was a rookie in the Bush North series running down there you know threes when you think about lifting and Two, if you're real brave and if you don't lift by one, then it's pretty much, you know, kiss your ass goodbye. Um, Did you talk to anybody about any of that or did you just
2: go out and drive it? No, I'm sure I had conversations with people. I don't remember who. Um, I definitely became pretty good friends with Jimmy. So if Jimmy had been there, which I don't remember if he did or not, I'm sure I would have asked him. Um, but I, I think Loudon was more of a comfort thing. I mean, you can ask those type of questions all you want, but you still have to take it easy the first couple of laps and do what's comfortable in my opinion. Um, no matter how good you think you are, the last thing you want to do is, well, they said, you know, right after two you can lift and just do it regardless of how comfortable you are. Cause that's when you make mistakes. Uh, So I think for me, it was probably a gradually getting up to speed type of thing. Like I said, two or three laps in, you have a pretty good idea. Um, You get to know your own car pretty well. And if the speed doesn't intimidate you, um, it doesn't take a crazy long amount of time to to see where your lifting point is roughly.
1: I mean, all this sort of brings us to present day. And, you know, obviously, we know why we haven't seen much of you. Um, But will we see more of you?
2: I think so. Yeah. Um, I've gone back and forth on it a lot, to be honest. And, you know, when I lost my brother, you you ask how, first of all, you ask if you want to do it without him or not. And I've gone back and forth on that quite a bit quite a bit um it won't ever be the same as i said he also helped to make the car very fast so um you also try to figure out how different people can fill in all of the roles that he had but i do love racing um yes it can get stressful at times especially points racing but I do love racing and I do consider myself extremely lucky to have what I have. Um, and everyone's been great about it. Uh, what I was nervous about is not necessarily intentionally, but unintentional pressure to get back. Um, just because people do, I guess, enjoy watching me race, which is cool, but I didn't get any of that at all. Um, My team loves it. They love being a part of this team. A couple of them, it's what they live for. So, but I felt zero pressure at all uh, to do anything other than what I wanted to do. So that's why we actually, um, I reached out to Charlie Rockwell. And I knew him from Canaan when he teched there. I've always had a lot of respect for him. Great guy. Great guy. And um for whatever reason I I didn't want to put the pressure on him, but I said if you could if you would be interested in, in uh you know helping us out, maybe we could go over and test and, and see how I felt. And it was rough. The whole ride over to the track was rough. We Chris let us rent uh White Mountain for the day. And uh I said, Well, <clears throat> Let's see how it goes. So we did show up to White Mountain at the end of last year. Um, unfortunately, we didn't, didn't even make it a lap in the heat race. We, we got wrecked pretty hard. But, and it was a rough day for me, for sure. Um, but as some friends and family remind me every now and then, uh, David probably would want me to keep doing what I love doing. So, like I said, <clears throat> I love racing. Um, we are putting it back together. I, I really have not decided on how many races um, or exactly which races, full-time, part-time. Um, everyone's pretty patient with me about that. So, I'm going to probably just see how I feel. I know it's, co- it's going to come up fast. I mean, we're in January now, so couple of months from now I sh- should force myself to come up with some type of an idea of what I want to do. But, um, that's, that's the really long answer to, it. I will, it's looking like we will go back out there this coming year. I just don't know, uh, exactly which races yet or how many. Coming out of
0: the race at white mountain. And obviously it was a pretty sucky experience overall for all the different reasons you talked about, was there any kind of relief when it was over that, you know, you had gone to the track, you tried to run and that, that first attempt was done.
2: Yeah, there was a little bit. Um, And also this is a good thing, but I knew that, what was going to come with it was a lot of people that cared coming up to me and between practice and the heat race, I, I was having a much harder time than people probably noticed. I was having a hard time being at the track, honestly. Um, and it was a nice feeling. Cause like I said, everyone, and everyone was great about it. You know, everyone just came up and just, it was just a, we're happy to see you here type of thing, which was perfect. Um, so, yeah, there was some relief of all of that. Of We did get back to the track and uh, not that this, you know, means a tremendous amount, but we did show some speed in practice, which is, was, I wasn't sure how that part was going to go. Um, we were on new tires. No, I, I don't really know these tires at all. They didn't didn't seem drastically different, but... Oh, the Hoosiers, uh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so I've only raced on the American Racers since I've been on the tour. And uh, we struggled a little bit in practice, honestly, and then we kept doing a few different things. And again, we had rented the track and practiced on our tires. And uh, you don't always know where you're at speed-wise. So we don't like doing this, but we uh, put on the the race set and we just said, Stagger might be a little bit different from what we were practicing on. We gotta gotta turn a couple laps and see where we're at. And final practice, we did that. Jumped up to uh, second for speed, which made me feel good that you know we weren't gonna we weren't gonna be right. You never know. I mean speed and practice doesn't necessarily translate, but it was good to know that we at least showed the speed and practice. Um, so yeah, there were a few reliefs for sure that day. Um, and I have no idea what to expect the next time we go back. I, I don't know if I'm going to experience all that emotional stuff all over again, or if some of it maybe, um, isn't going to be as bad because of at least going, going to the track, even though we made it not even a lap. (laughs)
1: I hope for you that the hardest part is out of the way.
2: Yeah, I hope so too. I have a great people around me, very supportive, like I said, and uh, feel lucky to have the people I do that are around me.
1: Let's talk about your legacy. Um, because if you never come back or if you race for another 20 years, um, you are a champion and not only of the actual championship, but you kind of fly the flag for all of those little teams. And again, it probably wasn't intentional. Um, but my God, and I'm going to say names that you probably don't even know, but I think of guys like Milt Wright or Barney McRae or Bob Brunel or whatever that ran 25th for 30 years, <laughs> you know, guys that that just show up and grind Blair Bissett, you know, um, And they have really not a whole lot of business being out there, but they love it. And every now and then they'll, they'll get a top 10 or something like that. Um, And it seems like, please take no offense to this, but a guy from Canaan in a super street doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell on the tour. And for you to do that um, and to not only not only stick it out for six years or whatever it was that you ran on the tour, but to actually have success and win races and be the champion. Um, has any of that ever hit home to you that like, man, you know, we had, we, we kind of play a bigger role here than, than just
2: for us. Um, it, it does. Yeah. And no offense taken. Cause that's how I felt as well. <laughs> like, uh, we did, you know, know what we were getting into and, um, I, I did not ever expect the success that we've had. Um, but, yeah, it is cool because um, the favorite my favorite overall track that I've ever raced at is probably Richmond now. And I remember at Richmond, I feel bad because I don't remember his name now, uh, but it was a, a guy from a small team made the trip down there, and he came up to me after the heat race or whatever it was. And uh, he was like, yeah, we want you to go win it for the small teams, for the small guys. And that felt really good for sure. And then, uh, yeah, that was awesome. Um, And then I had probably 100, 200 messages when we won the championship. And there were plenty of messages in there about, it's. it was really cool to see you win because it makes us smaller guys feel like we have a chance to do the same thing one day. And, yeah, that's obviously an awesome feeling.
0: All right, let's uh, head into our Barry Tile quick hitters, and we'll let you go. And thank you for giving us so much of your time this evening. First up, if you can recall, what was the
2: best race you ever saw that you weren't driving in boy that's a tough one i'd have to think about that well there was that one race um not too long ago a couple of years ago i think it was brooks clark and nick sweet i want to say we're going at it for the win i think brooks clark ended up winning and i was watching that one that was that was a hell of a race yeah i'd probably have to think more about it to come up with a, a better one but the, that was a hell of a race watching them go back and forth. on that one, one of them, one of them had a better short run car. The other one was a little better after like 10, 15 laps. it was just, that was a great race. Cause it was like, man, wherever these cautions fall is going to determine a lot here. That was, that was cool to watch.
1: Rich. What is the dumbest thing you ever did in a race car?
2: <laughs> oh, that's easy. Uh, I hope Tina's watching. Um, our first ever ACT race uh, at Oxford, we came in after practice and I ran over the scales and it was so bad that they had to get, I think it was two tow trucks to get us off the scales. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So they, so they set up the scales off to the side and anyone who's driven a race car, especially a late model knows your vision's actually quite limited. And I pulled up to ask Tina a question, and of course, everything was pretty uh, new to us, and uh, I asked her something, and she said, yeah, no, you can head back to your pet or whatever, she said, and I had no idea that the scales were set up in front of me, so put it in first gear, took off, and I drove over the scales sideways, and it hung my frame up on the scales, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> come to find out later, and everything. <laughs> Tina and Dean, Dean was the tech guy at the time, were so nice about it. And I was so embarrassed. And I remember Tina telling me years later, she said, yeah, we weren't too happy about that either. But she's like, we could tell you were pretty upset, pretty embarrassed. So she's like, we weren't going to let you know that. So, so, uh, But as I told my team on that one, I said because we finished ninth. I said at the end of the day, there's really only eight teams that can make fun of us for this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow, yeah, it's almost one of those when you get hung up,
2: you're searching around to put your helmet on so no one sees your face as much. <laughs> yeah, uh, I yeah, I think I spent a little extra time in the trailer that day.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, finally, that's, that's pretty fantastic.
0: That's a good one. Uh, if you could run any track in the world, at least one time, where would you want to go?
2: Uh, I'm assuming you're asking like a new track anywhere.
0: If you had one race left and it could be anywhere, where would you want to go?
2: Oh, oh man, it would probably be Richmond just because I, that track was awesome. And already being there, I know that I loved it. So I'd probably pick Richmond. Richmond. I'd love to go back there.
1: Um, I guess it didn't even occur to me that um, until you were telling the scale story that your the beginning of your ACT career coincided with sort of the end of Tom Curley's career and, and life, really.
2: Did you have a relationship with him? Honestly, not really. Uh, that's the one thing that kind of sucked because I could tell that we were the type of team that would have, that made him super proud I mean yeah. that's what he was after is to build something where the underdogs have have a good chance of competing up front um, I do remember after Oxford our first race he came up and said something to me just that he thought I drove a hell of a race and that he thought it was awesome that we did as well as we did um, but To be perfectly honest, a few interactions here and there with him. Uh, He was always super nice to me. I know not everyone had that experience with him. (laughs) Um, But yeah, unfortunately, I I didn't get a ton of time with him. But I obviously it's well known the respect that he had around New England and the country. Um, And I just appreciate what he did for the sport because he gave us something pretty cool to to race each other with on the tour where it's professional professionally run and um, it's a level playing field and and there is consistency. And fortunately I feel like a lot of that has carried over, which is good. If he had been
1: around that night that you clinched the championship at Thompson, he would have retired on the spot. Like that would have been, and I, and I mean that honestly, like that's, you are the, the, prototype for the tour and i think of a few moments um guys like miles chipman winning at lee or mark hayward winning at claremont you know the just the hometown grinders that show up once or twice a year or if they run the whole tour you know if they their 15th is a great run um and and he loved those teams and he he would have fallen in love with that 30 bunch for sure
2: yeah, I've I've heard that from a few different people, so it's always cool to hear. Uh, like I said, tremendous respect for him and and I I wish he could have been there for that. But thanks to him, uh we did have, you know, a shot to do it and and we did win it.
1: It's pretty amazing, man. <laughs> it really is. Uh I think that about wraps it up and and I just I the tour needs you. And that's not putting pressure on you. Uh, the the tour needs guys like you. And, uh, and I hope that, that you're able to find your way back. I think I can speak for Tom on that. Um, and a lot of, a lot of people. Um, so we're hoping that this winter goes well for you. And, you know, you pull the car out of the mothballs and go win a and
2: on opening day. And then it's off and running. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. And, and, uh, I appreciate the kind words and, uh, That stuff means a lot.
0: Thanks again to Rich for giving us so much of his time. A really enjoyable interview for us, or conversation. We don't even really like to call them interviews. Yeah, I
1: I hate the word interview.
0: You know, conversation. And uh, like we said in the open, this one's right up there right up there with some of the, some of our favorite episodes we've had.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, and I don't think we knew a whole lot about Rich Dubo either. When we started the show, um, we had way more questions than answers about his early career and his life and all that stuff. And um, definitely put some pieces together, which is really the point of the show. <laughs> you know, I mean, anybody can go to, Racing reference and and look up the stats, yeah, for the third and, turn, yeah,
0: you know, I thought pretty insightful guy and dealing with a lot of stuff, pretty good outlook,
1: yeah, he's a young guy too, for everything that he has gone through, he's just turned thirty three i mean he's he's done a lot in that he's packed a lot into that thirty three years. Um, which you know we talked about in the beginning of the show that he's a champion at thirty. Um, that's yeah, he's done a lot of living.
0: <laughs> Definitely want to make sure we thank Barry Tile, Morrison Clark for helping bring today's episode, as long- yeah. well as Bushy's Generators and Sales.
1: I'm gonna pull up the Barry Tile page right now and see there's been any updates over the holidays um that tile in my bedroom or my bedroom my bathroom is getting worse and worse and it's like help my daughter help my daughter have a bath tonight and like stepped on it and like the corner came up so that's pissing me off (laughs) so we've got a we've got a plan for this weekend and we'll be down in the Berry area so maybe we'll just have to stop in the showroom and Check it out. There you go. You know, we,
0: to, uh, we definitely want to get out and see see some of these great people who are supporting us.
1: I mean, how often have we looked at the at the Facebook page and and there's a couple of pictures of their showroom on there, and it's like, man, this is impressive. And and you see the pictures of the, um, you know, like the carpeted stairs, and like. I don't know. They just, they add so much or uh my, Hey Tom, by the way, my bathroom renovation, the other bathroom that we're doing, it's actually starting to move a little bit, but like I wish that I had seen the berry tile stuff before we started doing that because so many ideas that we're not going to end up with <laughs> and uh Dave Clark and his team, um, they can, they can do all that for you. They can, help you select the product they can install it they can tell you what's going to last 20 years down the road or this this product's junk and you're going to replace it in 5 years or whatever you know i mean that's pretty cool um and like we say they're racers and that helps yeah <laughs> you know
0: i do know but yes i i can see your point uh it's no fun window shopping after you've made your purchase
1: oh my gosh so many ideas. And for real, I've gotten a lot of them from this Berry Tile Facebook page. And it's, <laughs> I wish, again, we need to go back in time and restart this in July or something so that we can we can get this deal six months earlier <laughs> and and know what the hell I'm trying to do <laughs> with this construction
0: project. They still might be able to help tell you what yeah. the hell you're trying to
1: do. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, uh, go, go see Dave and his team on the South barrier road. Tom, we got to go to We got to go down there this weekend. We can get that done. We can do that. All right. We'll do that. Um, yeah. And you made it through the cold snap.
0: We did, you know, uh, everyone's relatively warm. Kids were disappointed. They couldn't play outside at school. A little mm-hmm. too cold for
1: that, but we we made it through. We stopped and saw you guys on what Sunday? Yes, last weekend. Yes, and it was like seven degrees out that day, or some stupid thing.
0: Yeah, it wasn't quite that
1: bad yet. And then, oh yeah, no, the, the bottom fell out. I guess Monday, like that night, Monday yeah. night, heading or into Monday, Monday. Yeah, well, had something gone awry. You would have wanted a generator. I really would have. <laughs> with with four kids in the house, yeah, power and heat are a thing that you need uh, at all times. And again, we have how else will those tablets stay charged? Oh my god! It's all about the priorities. Oh, it's about the priorities. Well. If you had had a problem, you could have called Ben Bushy, uh, Bushy's generator sales and service. Now, listen, they get two locations. Um, You got Springfield and you got Brookfield in Vermont, but Ben will go all over the state of Vermont, all over the state of New Hampshire. And he reaches out to mass Connecticut, New York. Um, If you've got an issue or if you're want to prevent an issue, um, Call call bushies and, and get yourself some of that power. Um, that's their slogan, we keep your power on.
0: And right. it's uh it's an important time of year to have the power, like you said. Uh yeah. Yeah. But thank you to Bushies. Thank you to Barry Tile for continuing to support the show. Make sure you follow us on all the socials. Uncommon Deeds on Twitter and Facebook, Uncommon Deeds Podcast on the Instagram.
1: Oh, the Instagram, man. Yes.
0: Also, if you want to join the family, you're interested in perhaps sponsoring the Uncommon Deeds Podcast, or even you might have a podcast or media idea of your own that we might be able to help you with, you can reach out to us on any of those socials, or you can send us an email, uncommonmediavt at gmail.com. Gmail. We got new decals, too. We do have new decals. Fresh off the uh, off the press.
1: Deckles, as our friends in Ontario yeah. would say.
0: From Massetti Brothers, Custom Vinyl Lettering. Uh, we got new uh, special edition decals for Ooh, our...
1: Freaking cool. Yeah.
0: For our guests, the guest winners. And we got our reverse uncommon deeds logo, which it's ironic. If you noticed wherever you listen to your podcasts, I switched the logos to the reverse color, which is ironically the first sticker we had. Right. So the logo now is the white background with the black lettering, which was our original sticker or decal, and we now have the black background white lettering decals in. Decal, yeah. So we just got those in. If you want to get your hands on the reverse logo Uncommon Deeds decal, you can drop us a message just like we did with our first set of decals, which are no more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They gone. And they're, you guys used them up on us.
0: Yeah. Uh, send us a message. Send us the address, and
1: we will get those out for you. Mm-hmm. Exciting stuff. I'm looking at Spotify right now. That's where I listen to my podcasts. And so it reverted. You changed the logo. Mm-hmm. So episodes 1 through 29 are now the new logo. Correct. So the white it changes background. changes yeah. Well no, but thirty through up until the Tracy Gordon show, forty six, are the black background with the white letters. And then the Bucko show last week is the white background, the new logo. Okay. So I don't know if Spotify is just tweaking out or what. Maybe.
0: I don't know.
1: Can you change on on that? Can you change so it just stays so like Crunch Bunch, there's the Crunch Bunch logo on just that episode? Or does it change all been
0: tinkering with that? I got to do a little more tinkering just Mm -hmm. to see if I can or not, or if it changes everything. We'll tinker. I think I can do individual, individual episodes.
1: So anyway, that's the show.
0: (laughs) That's the show. Thanks everybody for tuning in and listening. Hitting the road this weekend. One of them, uh, I might be real excited about. Yeah. Well, I'm excited about, we're going to, Potentially record a couple and I'm very excited about both, but
1: there's one that's going to be super cool for you. That's true. Yeah.
0: If that doesn't give away your guess, the guest, and
1: <laughs> by the way, we haven't told them yet.
0: You're not paying attention. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if you we are have- paying attention, there's a chance <laughs> that it's going to be way off. Cause it didn't go through. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we ha- we have, we have like seven or eight shows pretty much locked in we just have to figure out the dates like we've never we've never had the the upcoming pool this deep before yeah. you know now it's like just we've, making it we've work. reached out to a lot of people and they've said yes well tell me the date and we'll do it so you know we're pretty much covered as yeah. long as we can line, as long as we can figure it out you
0: know some yeah. some have to be in person yeah uh some can do the zoom or in person and trying to maneuver them to where it works out best for us getting them all done
1: right so there's some logistical maneuver planning him for this deal yeah yeah uh
0: so keep an eye out for that thank you for listening to the uncommon deeds podcast a production of uncommon media